Let's turn in our Bibles as we study God's word together. Turn to Titus chapter three. I'm gonna start reading uh, right where we left off last week. Chris preached an excellent message last week on verses one to seven, and I'm picking up in verse eight. Paul writes these words. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey so they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. So in recent years, a spate of books have been written by what's sometimes called the new atheists. So these are, it's an aggressive aggressive batch of atheists uh, like Christopher Hitchens um, and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and others, and they've all kind of come together to write these books that are angry and militantly attack the Christian faith. One of them by Christopher Hitchens entitled, God is Not Great how religion poisons everything. So trying to make the case that if you look at history and analyze the course of history, Christianity has really had a a bad effect, a detrimental effect on cultures and on nations around the world. Wherever it has planted its roots, bad things have grown up is his contention. In stark contrast to those kinds of books and that kind of historical analysis would be writers and academics like Rodney Stark, who is the distinguished professor of social sciences at Baylor University. Stark has written 30, over 30 books on the history of sociology and religion. So he's an expert in this area. One of the books that he wrote several years back is a 512-page tome. I mean, a big, thick book, and it's just simply titled The Triumph of Christianity, How the Jesus Movement Became the World's Largest Religion. And one of the things that he contends for there, especially in chapters six and seven, is good works. They were good people. They did amazing things in the world, generous, compassionate, merciful, justice-pursuing things in the world, and it changed societies and cultures, and it arrested the the attention of the Roman Empire. So when he was speaking Rodney Stark in his book, when he speaks about the way Christianity took up the cause of the afflicted, he writes these words. In the midst of the squalor, misery, and illness of ancient cities, Christianity provided mercy and security. Foremost was the Christian duty to alleviate want and suffering. It started with Jesus, and now he quotes Jesus. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
James 2, 15 to 17, expresses a similar idea. Now, Stark quotes James. If a brother or sister is ill-clad, or that means just poorly clothed, ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. And then Stark says this. It wasn't just talk. In 251 AD, the Bishop of Rome wrote a letter to the Bishop of Antioch in which he mentioned that the Roman congregation was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons. He goes on to describe a historical event, an epidemic that struck the Roman Empire in 165 AD and wiped out, some say, a quarter of the population of the empire, some say a third of the population of the empire, and History says that the pagan priests all over the empire fled the cities where the, the plague was breaking out. And the people who stayed there to nurse some people back to health and to die with others while caring for them were the Christians. So much so that the anti, I mean aggressively anti-Christian uh, emperor named Julian rebuked the pagan priests at the time with these words in a letter to one of the high priests of Galatia. The impious Galileans, he writes, that would be us. The impious Galileans, that's the Christians. The impious Galileans, in addition to their own, support ours. And it is a shame that our poor should be lacking our aid. It was Julian the hater of Christianity, who was saying to other haters of Christianity, why are they outrunning us and caring for our own people? What is going on here, right? Christians, they didn't do good works in order to grow the church. It wasn't like a church growth program. Hey, let's do these good works and you know, maybe more people will come to church with us. It wasn't motivated by church growth. They did it because they had new hearts. God had given new hearts to his people. But here's the thing is, he had given new hearts and so they did good works and those good works significantly grew the church because more and more people were curious about this new life and the diversity of the people who were gathering to worship this Jesus. And it shouldn't be surprised that it grew the church. After all, Jesus had said in the beginning when he said, let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify, join us, glorify the Father who is in heaven. And so Paul is kind of riffing on that same kind of idea, that same theme, missional living. And he puts it in, as we've seen these last several weeks, he puts Christianity in three very ordinary domains. He puts it in the church, he puts it in the home, and he puts it in society, puts it as citizens of, um, of cities, and Paul says, all these good works, they're going to affect the way that people hear our gospel. They're gonna render our gospel more compelling and more credible because we're not just talking. They see the change that the gospel brings. And Paul uses that kind of missional language all throughout where he's saying, do good works so that God's word will not be slandered, chapter two, verse five. Do good works so that quote, our opponents won't have anything bad to say about us, chapter two, verse eight. Do good works so that we might, chapter two, verse 10, adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. So it's good works has an effect on gospel advancement in the world. So here's Paul 
We began this series by studying what we call the glorious gospel hello, the way that Paul greets them at the beginning, just filled with good news. And then he closes it down here at the end with a glorious gospel goodbye. We see two things. First, gospel resolve. Gospel resolve. Keep the Bible open. We're going to look at it together. Verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. I want you, Titus, I want you to insist on these things, Paul says, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. So this is a recurring theme throughout the book of Titus, and it's this, faith and good works belong together. Faith isn't meant to just run all by itself. Faith runs with a running partner, good works. They run together. This is a primary theme, not just in the book of Titus, but in the larger section of the New Testament that we're in, which is called the pastoral epistles. They're called pastoral epistles because Paul is writing to church leaders, and the name of the letter is the name of the church leader. First Timothy is pastoral epistle number one. Second Timothy is pastoral epistle number two. Titus is pastoral epistle number three. So in the pastoral epistles, this idea of good works, good conduct, to make a missional difference in the world is one of the primary themes. Matter of fact, the term goodness, Paul uses the Greek term goodness 35 times in just these three short letters. So he is, he is pressing this idea home. Matter of fact, we didn't really stop and unpack this specifically when we looked at church leaders and elders in chapter one of Titus. But in Titus chapter one, Paul says, hey, when you look to raise up godly elders and godly leaders in the church, look for men who are philagathos. It's a combination of two Greek words. Phileo means love, agathos means good. Look for men who love goodness, who are lovers of good. And that is they, they prove that they love good because that's the example of the way that they live. They live virtuous lives transformed by Jesus. Faith isn't just talk. When you raise up leaders, make sure you find people who don't just talk the faith, but walk the faith. Now, I think this is, it's good for us to pursue nuance and clarity because sometimes if you use the term good works, people who read the New Testament might instantly think, okay, you say good works, I say that's a bad thing. And the reason you have that impulse is because there are lots of places in the New Testament where Paul is talking to self-righteous people who think that they can ingratiate themselves with God, who think that they can earn merit or, or merit favor in the eyes of God by their spiritual performance. So Paul is constantly knocking them off their high horse and saying, no, you can't be saved. You can't be justified and accepted by God on the basis of your spiritual performance. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone. So that's one of the reasons you would respond and say, hey, let's be wary about this good works thing. But the reason I say nuance is not every passage in the New Testament says good works are something for us to be wary of. There are lots of passages like the one we're looking at this morning that say good works are something for us to lean into, to pursue, to exemplify in our lives. Here's a classic one. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a verse that lots of Christians memorize, been saved by grace through faith, right? So the salvation is by grace. Even the faith that you have is not of yourself, right? So you have no room to boast. It's God's gift, right? So there's... Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is talking about grace alone. It's talking about faith alone. But in the very next verse, in verse 10, it says this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for 
good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So the New Testament in so many ways is pro-good works, provided those good works sit in the appropriate place and not for us earning favor. You see that right even here in the immediate context of our passage here in Titus chapter three. Look at verse five. Paul says, he saved us, notice this phrase, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. So he says, we weren't saved by works of righteousness, but then three verses later, that same Paul says, Titus, see verse eight? Titus, I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. So this might be controversial to ask this question, but I think it's an important question. Can your God insist on things? Can he issue commands? Jesus would would have a pretty direct conversation with religious leaders in his day, in Matthew 7, when he said, you, you, you say, Lord, Lord, but you keep not doing the things that I say to do. You keep ignoring my commands. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. Can your God insist on things? If, if Christian salvation was represented by a formula, just go with me here for a second. If it was represented by, I really shouldn't venture far into math. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'll tread lightly and I'll get out as fast as I can. But all right, Christian, think about it in the form of a formula. And if you had to include in that formula this combination of three things, faith has to be in there, good works has to be in there, and justification or our acceptance with God has to fit into the formula. The question is, where do you put all the components of that equation? You could draw it up three ways, all right? So here's one. Formula, faith plus good works leads to or gives you the outcome of justification or gives you the outcome of acceptance before God. What's the message? If that's the formula you embrace, what's the message underneath that formula? It's this, trust in Jesus and produce a changed life and then God will accept you. And the name of that ideology is moralism and it is to be rejected. Read books like Galatians. That's not the only formula that's out there, though. Here's another formula, not just legalism, but antinomianism, all right? So here's the second one, formula. Faith leads to justification minus good works. So the message here is trust in Jesus and God will accept you. You won't have to change. Don't expect to change. Don't pursue change. And the name of that ideology is empty faith. That's how James would say it. Faith without works is dead. It's just us talking. It's us nodding yes to some things about Jesus and thinking we're straight. And the New Testament addresses that error. Matter of fact, right here in Titus, if you just want to flip back, if you still got your Bible open, flip back to chapter 1, verse 16. Titus 1, 16. Notice the, the language that Titus uses here. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. So what's your read on things? Paul says, glad you asked. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Well, tell us what you really think, right? Paul is saying it's one thing to just talk, to claim to know God, but if our works deny our claim, then our works are telling us something. 
And so we've seen two false formulas, and here's another one. Here's the third formula. Formula, faith, belief in Jesus, leads to acceptance with God plus good works. Faith leads to justification before God, which then comes with it. The the caboose on the train, the thing that faith is pulling behind it is good works. Martin Luther himself, who was you know, the, the great reformer who talked about salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And he said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. True, genuine faith brings with it in its caboose, it pulls another train car, and the train car that it pulls with it is changed lives, genuinely reformed and reforming people. So here's the message. I got off the slide for a little bit. All right, trust in Jesus and God will accept you, you'll want to change. And because of the Holy Spirit, you can change. And the name of that idea is Christianity. (laughs) Trust in Jesus and God will accept you. Full stop. Acceptance by faith alone. But you're gonna want to start changing. It's inside out. Because the Holy Spirit's gonna move in. He's gonna move the furniture around. He's gonna give you new cravings, new desires. And because he's there, you can change. That's, That's Christianity. That's what Paul's gunning for. He's saying, hold these two things together. Faith and good works, they belong together. Next point, truth and heresy don't. Truth and heresy don't belong together. And that's where he goes in verse nine. Verse nine, so after he says what to do and what to pursue, he says, but avoid this. Avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. And Paul uses the term hereticos from which we get the word heretic. He uses that term. When you see reject a divisive person, it's the word heretic. So the earliest form and usage of the word heretic wasn't necessarily, hey, go find the people who are card-carrying deniers of cardinal doctrines of the faith. The, the first usage of heretic was find people who want to push the gospel out to the periphery and put something else that's more exciting in the middle. And we'll divide the church over that. We'll create sects over their new favorite thing which in this particular case is genealogies, speculative stuff about events that are going on, weird readings of the law in the Old Testament, right? That's kind of their favorite thing. And they're saying, this is really exciting. Nobody's got a corner on the market of these exciting new truths like us. And Paul says, hey, no, gospel sits at the center. Everything else is at the periphery at best. So Paul is using that term. Paul says, verse nine, conversations these teachers are generating are his words unprofitable and worthless and notice what he says in verse 10 I mean this is kind of shocking to our system reject a divisive person after a first and second warning it's kind of similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 we've got a three strike situation here warn him once warn him twice reject him on the third Paul just said, we we don't have time to fight about dumb stuff that's put at the center of the faith instead of the gospel. If they won't turn after multiple warnings, it's time to say goodbye. It's a gospel goodbye. It's guarding the faith. It's protecting the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so if you ask the, the question, then what 
message is the gospel? What message belongs at the center of the life of the church? What do we unify around? For all of our differences, what do we unify around? Well, Paul answers that question right here in the same context in verse four. See it? Titus 3, verse 4. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And that's just Paul saying, this is us on message. If you claim to be a Christian and you're on the island of Crete, this is your favorite message, verses four through seven. We live, we fight, we contend for this message to be at the center. Let me just, let me just admonish Brook Hill's small groups. So you meet together during the week, whether it's here on campus or off campus, Brook Hill's small groups. There are lots of great resources that you could study, a good Christian book that you could walk through together. But the Christian books that are gonna build you up the most and make you mature in the faith are books that are gonna help you connect the gospel to your whole life. Connect the gospel to your season of life, connect the gospel to your hardships and suffering, connect the gospel to your struggles with sin. It's, it's gospel connected to everyday life. When you study scripture, maybe you're walking through a book of the Bible, when you study scripture as a small group, make sure you study scripture in a way that you're looking at every text to see Jesus. Because that's what Jesus said to do. He, he talked about how the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures in vain. You're searching the scriptures, but you fail to come to me. The scriptures testify of me. So if we fail to look at the text of scripture and come to Jesus, we're reading the Bible like Pharisees. And Jesus says, hey, you missed me somewhere in there. You need to go back and try again and see how all of the word of God orients around Jesus, his life, his death, his rising, his return. So we see gospel resolve and we see gospel mission. Gospel mission. Look with me at verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, so he's got two options and he's not sure which one he's going to send. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Now, this isn't, if you're familiar with reading New Testament letters, this isn't the only place where we see moving parts in the kingdom, moving parts in the church, where Paul is, he's pulling somebody this way and he's sending somebody that way and he's traveling with somebody over there, right? There's a lot of moving parts. That's what's going on here in this passage. Matter of fact, in chapter one, Paul says, Titus, you and I went to Crete together. Remember that? We went to Crete together and I left you in Crete because there was a mess in the churches in Crete and I left you there to clean up what was going on in Crete. That's why I left you there. So there's a moving part. They both moved there. Paul leaves, Titus stays. And then Paul says, I'm gonna send a guy. I'm not sure if I'm gonna send Art or if I'm gonna send Tychicus. I'm gonna send one of those guys. And when he gets there, he's gonna hold it down and you come meet me over here in Nicopolis. Moving parts, right? Now, we don't have apostles. We don't 
You know, here in this church age, we don't have apostles at some headquarters, wherever, in Antioch or Jerusalem or Birmingham. We don't have apostles who are kind of deploying troops in different places and moving parts all around. That, that we don't get that from somewhere else, some, some central church headquarters. But imagine, just for a second, imagine if we did. I mean, at a local church level, imagine if we did. We just got word from somewhere else that people were going to be moving out of Brook Hills because the headquarters said, move those people out, right? So David Platt had been serving for eight years. And so imagine David Platt comes into the year 2014, which is the year when he... Uh, left Brook Hills and went to his next work and assignment. But imagine on that day when he announced it to the church. I was sitting right there when he announced to the church that he's leaving in 2014. And imagine if David got up and he said, you know, Apostle so-and-so is sending Artemis and Tychicus here to Brook Hills. And, uh, and he's pulling me off to Nicopolis to spend the winter there. And that's, I'm just going to indefinitely go into a new ministry season. If he said... That's, you know, some apostle so-and-so was moving different parts. Some of us would have said, uh, so what's the email address of apostle so-and-so, right? How do we, uh, do, where's the, when does the church vote happen when we decide, one, if you're leaving, and two, who's your replacement, right? Where, do we, where does that happen, right? And if you're in Crete, you're kind of imagining, these are, these are not people I'm familiar with. Artemis, don't know. All I know is his name means follower of the goddess Artemis, which seems questionable, right? The goddess Artemis was the god of nature, right? And then Tychicus means lucky. So you're sending lucky and nature boy uh, to the church at Crete and we're losing Titus? This is the worst trade in church history, right? Let's, how about we not do this? When is the church vote and how about we not do this? <laughs> so the deeper point is something many of us have felt. Gospel goodbyes are hard but necessary. Gospel goodbyes are hard but necessary. Maybe they weren't ready to send Titus. There are people in this room who have gathered around at the base of these steps to pray for members of your own family to leave Birmingham and in some cases travel overseas to live in another part of the world on mission for Jesus. And there have been tearful goodbyes right here, hard goodbyes. And it's not always just a formal commissioning type of thing, right? A friend, maybe a, a friend in high school who was a major part of your growth in Jesus and you uh, walking with the Lord and that friend is headed off to college in another state and there's this gospel goodbye and it's like, how, how am I going to do without being able to lean on my friend? Maybe a small group leader in the church, or maybe somebody in your small group. They're your confidant. They're your best friend. You've shared with them your deepest, hardest struggles, and God is picking them up and moving them to Atlanta. They're, they're going somewhere else. God is bringing them in his providence. He's bringing them somewhere else. A church staff member takes a position at another church. We just prayed for Sean Gould a couple weeks ago, right? Gospel goodbyes, it's hard, but it's a part of it. Doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. And when those things happen, you start to think, now I gotta restart. That, that was my best friend. Now I gotta, I gotta reset somehow or the church corporately has gotta start over. The moments where you feel like you're starting over. These closing words about moving parts reveal something really important and it's this. We plan, but God decides. We plan, but God decides. God is the 
The Holy Spirit is the air traffic controller of the mission. He decides where we fly. It's his determination and he is all wise. You know, there are times where the Apostle Paul himself doesn't know where he's going. Because <laughs> it hasn't been revealed yet. And Paul, he makes plans, but God's going to decide. He makes plans to go to Asia. And he said, the Spirit forbade us to go. We tried to go and it was like there was a blockade set up. And I think the Holy Spirit had something to do with it. We couldn't get to that place even though we tried to get there. My... Um, my older brother, Paul, I spent last weekend with him. I preached a youth conference, which I, so I pretended to be a youth pastor for a couple of days. I wore my Daniel tennis shoes, uh, did my best, <laughs> uh, had a great time. And then that led into getting to preach at um, my brother's church, Living Waters Worship Center in Texas last Sunday. But on Saturday, the day before, Paul and I went out in between youth sessions and played tennis. And um, it was great. It was actually a terrible decision. It was 107 degrees uh, in Seguin, Texas that afternoon. So we didn't play for very long. But while we were just knocking the ball back and forth, Paul said, you know, I'm just wrapping up our own series in the book of Acts. And he said, I've been dipping into y'all's series in the book of Acts that y'all did back in 2016 because Paul was wrapping up. And he said, so I'm getting to certain sections of, of Acts and I wasn't sure what to do with that section. You know, like the big chunks in Acts chapter 20 in the 20s where Paul's just on trial forever and it lasts multiple chapters to get there. And he's like, I didn't know what to do with the multiple chapters of Paul's trial and defense on trial. And, uh, and I said, I didn't know what to do with those passages either. So I assigned it to another pastor, in, uh, <laughs> which is not a joke. I literally did that. <laughs> I gave five chapters to, uh, to my friend Jonathan Bean, who is now with Jesus. And that was Paul's point while we were hitting the tennis ball. He said, I listened to that sermon on Acts 21 to 25 from Jonathan Bean. And he said, I was so moved. I was so moved by his passion for Jesus and his trust in Christ. And so I went back after we had that conversation and I pulled up the manuscript from that sermon and here's some things that our brother said to us exhorting us one clear way we can all defend the faith by the way the message is entitled defending the faith in the empire one clear way we all can defend the faith in our world today is to persevere in the midst of all circumstances those circumstances may be hardship that you are facing in a number of different areas of life they may be health or financial struggles it may be suffering in a number of different ways that you did not bring on yourself. But the world doesn't know what to do when Christians stand strong in their faith, even in the midst of hardship. So often, God uses this as an opportunity for us to defend the faith before our world. And he went on, as I read his manuscript again last night, he went on to talk about how they had just heard in the last couple of weeks that his brain tumor was back. And it was a, it was a heavy moment for us. I, I was sitting there. It was a heavy moment for us to hear that from him. And then he said this, in the middle of whatever your circumstance, you can trust God's good plan. He is a loving heavenly father that knows what is best for you. He does not treat us as we deserve, but he is merciful and gracious. And God gives us the strength to persevere in all circumstances. So brother and sister, press on in faith. 
And I looked that up this weekend, not just because my brother was helped by it in preparing for a hard section of the book of Acts, but I, I looked it up because here's Paul in our text, and he's urging believers to live on mission right up to the end. That is, right up to the end of Paul's life, he's urging believers to live on mission. Paul was still making plans, and yet he was holding them loosely, trusting God's providence. Because Paul, essentially, here at the end of this letter, he says, I need to figure out if I'm sending Artemis or Tychicus. When one of them gets there, you pull up stakes and you meet me, and we're going to winter together in Nicopolis for the sake of mission. And guess what? Paul never made it to Nicopolis. Instead, he ended up in prison in Rome. And instead of wintering with Titus in Nicopolis, he ends up writing the very last letter that he would ever write to his son of the faith, book of 2 Timothy. And he says, I'm wintering in prison and I need a coat because it's cold. And he was martyred within a year. Unbeknownst to Paul, Crete ended up being his last assignment. And here he wraps up this missional letter by saying, hey Titus, I'm closing it down. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. And then he mentions four role players that the world has almost never heard about. Apollos, Zenos the lawyer, Artemis, and Tychicus. And they were sent for a reason. They were going to be sent for a reason, to help Christians in Crete show unbelieving Crete that the gospel changes people, that grace changes people. And it changes them in such a way that they don't go off and live together in some Christian bubble. They engage the world. They engage the city. They engage Crete. And and they do it through their ordinary lives that count for the kingdom as good citizens in society, as men and women, husbands and wives, parents, children, disciple makers. Ordinary goodness, here's the point, motivated by grace, bears fruit for the kingdom. And I love how this this letter ends with an emphasis on the beauty of the church. He says, all those who are with me Titus, send you greetings. And then he says, greet those who love us in the faith. And then he finishes with, grace be with all of you. And in that way, as Paul closes this letter with those words, while insisting on good works, Paul gives grace the first word and the last word. He says, when he says hi, he says, grace to you. And when he says goodbye, he says, grace be with all of you. Friends, lean into ordinary opportunities to serve Jesus in your world this week and it's going to count for the kingdom.